Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. It's the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Harris. Hello, my fellow suffering beings. Every once in a while, I'll be rushing around the house, checking things off my to-do list, and I'll stop short and think to myself, what am I doing again? Why am I in this particular room? What mission was I on that propelled me in this direction? And for the life of me, I will not be able to remember. In moments like this, I sometimes worry, is this early onset Alzheimer's? Same for when I run into somebody who I haven't seen in a minute and I can't remember their name or when I try to bring to mind a word I've been searching for and I can't do it. In these moments, I tell myself a story about how I've got dementia in my family and these kinds of things have been happening to me more frequently as I enter my 50s and down the toilet I go. I suspect some of this might sound familiar to you no matter what age you're at, and I suspect you will find the conversation you are about to hear extremely reassuring. Many of the things you might suspect to be symptoms of early onset dementia are, in fact, totally normal. And even if you have dementia in your family, there really are things you can do to prevent it for yourself. My guest today is Lisa Genova. She's got a PhD in neuroscience from Harvard. She's the New York Times bestselling author of several novels, including Still Alice, about a woman with Alzheimer's. That book was adapted into a film starring Julianne Moore. Lisa's first work of nonfiction is now out. It's called Remember the science of memory and the art of forgetting. And in this conversation, we talk about the impact of things like sleep, meditation, and brain games. We talk about the difference between normal forgetting and actual memory loss. And we talk about the best foods and styles of exercise for staving off Alzheimer's. It's a heavy topic, obviously, but as you'll hear, Lisa is a delight. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. You can count on T-Mobile to help keep you connected after investing billions to light up their network from big cities to small towns. T-Mobile is America's largest 5G network. Plus, when you switch to T-Mobile, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus Verizon and AT&T. Visit your neighborhood store or T-Mobile.com to switch. Plan savings with T-Mobile. Third line free on essentials via monthly bill credits versus comparable available plans. Plan features may vary. Credits stop if you cancel or change plans. 
Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You will always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. What I've been checking out recently is called Our Share of Night. It's technically, I guess, a horror, but it's definitely literature. I mean, it's incredibly well-written, absolutely fascinating. And it really does rhyme with some of the themes that we explore uh, on this show. I highly recommend it, although I'm only uh, through the, the first 15, 20% of it, but already I highly recommend it. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. Lisa Genova, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. Really happy to have you. I feel some personal urgency fueling this discussion, as I imagine many listeners will feel as well. But before we get into, you know, all of my selfish questions, which hopefully are selfish for the listener as well, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. How and when and why did you get interested in memory and dementia? Yeah, so I'm a neuroscientist, but I actually never studied memory and Alzheimer's when I was in the lab. My area of expertise was the molecular neurobiology of drug addiction. My interest in memory and Alzheimer's began when my grandmother had Alzheimer's. And so I was the neuroscientist in this very big Italian family, grew up just outside of Boston, and I wasn't one of her caregivers. That responsibility fell to my parents and my aunts, but I loved my grandmother and I lived nearby. And I thought, well, one of the things I can do is learn everything I can about Alzheimer's and pass that education along. And I learned a ton. And some of it was useful, some of it wasn't. Like, I geeked out on the neuroscience of it. That wasn't really helpful. But I learned about the clinical disease management. I learned about caregiving. Books like The 36-Hour Day were certainly helpful. But what I found was lacking was the perspective of the person with it. So everything was written by a clinician or a scientist or a caregiver, so they were all views from the outside looking in. And while I spent time with my grandmother, what I noticed was that I had a lot of sympathy for her and for us. I felt so bad for her. She was losing her connection to everyone she knew and loved. This entire beautiful life she lived, she didn't remember any of it anymore eventually. And I felt so bad for us for losing her right in front of us. But that's sympathy. And sympathy really drives otherization. It's disconnection emotionally, right? So I felt this longing for empathy I was in my late 20s at the time, and I just didn't know how to be comfortable enough around my grandmother's Alzheimer's. It was really frustrating and heartbreaking and embarrassing at times and really unnerving for me. So I didn't know how to really just be present and still next to my grandmother with her Alzheimer's. I didn't know how to get to empathy. And the aha that thankfully I had was, oh, well, fiction is a place where you can explore empathy. You can walk in someone else's shoes through another character, through story. This is how humans experience what it's like to be someone else. And so I thought, well, someday I'll write a novel about a woman with Alzheimer's and tell it from her perspective. And that endeavor eventually became Still Alice and everything else followed from there. How much do we know about what it's like to have Alzheimer's? 
We know a lot. So I think that the general public sort of conception and actually misconception of this disease for a long time, again, like, you know, people tended not to talk about this until recently. It was a lot like cancer was like 40, 50 years ago, or people called it the big C and we never spoke of cancer. So we didn't really know what it was like to live with that. Same with Alzheimer's. Like there's a lot of taboo and stigma surrounding anything going on from the neck up, really. Any mental illness, any neurodegenerative disease, there's a lot of shame and stigma that carry with that. But the misconception was like, oh, well, this is a disease of the dying elderly. If you picture someone with Alzheimer's, you might picture someone really elderly, 80s, 90s. They're in a nursing home bed. They don't know anyone anymore. Um, They may not be speaking. But what people weren't imagining and what people might not still be imagining is, well, what does living with Alzheimer's look and sound and feel like? And by the way, you can be diagnosed in your 40s and 50s. You can get early onset Alzheimer's. 60s and 70s are not as old as we used to think they are, maybe. Like, it's like people living vibrant lives. You know, we're learning how to match brain span with lifespan, and we're living a really long time compared to You know, 1900, the average life expectancy in the U.S. was 47. And so there are examples of us now living with Alzheimer's, whereas before I think the conception was we're dying of Alzheimer's. So we have a lot of people who are living with this who are more and more speaking up and sharing what it's like to live with it. So I think we're either personally, we'll know someone with it, and so we'll know what it feels like because they can share it, or there are more people talking about it. I get all of that, and I'm still curious what we know about what it's like from the inside to have Alzheimer's. I I have a close family member who was diagnosed in his 60s and it was a very rapid decline from there. And it looked awful. It still looks awful. I'm searching for somebody to tell me it's not that bad. Well, it's tough. You know, we rely on memory for pretty much everything we do all day. Just the logistics of our lives rely on memory. So everything from your memories for how to do things. So it's you know, get dressed, brush your teeth, how to work the coffee machine, how to drive the car, how to send your emails. Those are all memories. All the information. So what's your name? Where do you live? Who was the first president? You know, information and facts, the Wikipedia of your life, all of the people you know and how you know them. So all your loved ones, all that relational information, what happened in your life, all your episodic memories, that narrative that gives you a sense of identity and self is memory. And so With Alzheimer's, you're losing access to your most recent memories and personal history first, and then it sort of peels back like layers of an onion from there. And it's very scary. I know a lot of people very well who have Alzheimer's and are living with it. And there are a lot of losses and compensations and new new realities to be adjusted to. And it's very scary and it's difficult for sure. And I think one of the biggest lessons I've learned in knowing all of the people I know who have Alzheimer's and doing the research when I wrote the book Still Alice, what people want us to know, is that memory does not define what it means to be human. I mean, despite all of what I said about how important and crucial memory is, interestingly, Alzheimer's never steals your ability to feel human emotion. So if I have Alzheimer's, I can lose access to all of the memories I've ever made in my life. I won't know who you are or any any of the people I love. I won't remember my earliest memories, but I'll still know how to love and what it feels like to feel loved. I'll still have the full range of human emotions. So I can still feel sad, happy, angry, afraid. I can feel everything still. So that part of being human never leaves us. So if, you know, I tell people like, 
well, if you have Alzheimer's and you're not going to remember this conversation I'm having with you, Dan, it doesn't mean that our conversation didn't matter. It doesn't mean that I didn't enjoy it while I had it. And maybe 10 minutes later, I don't remember ever having met you. But that doesn't mean that in the moment, in the present moment, that my life still didn't matter. Actually, the more we're talking, the more I realized I've had several relatives with Alzheimer's, as have many people listening. And I'm thinking of this story that I've told before of my uncle Martin, who he was a very smart man. And he and I were sitting next to each other post-diagnosis at a dinner. And he said to me, what's more exciting to you, reality or memory? And I thought about it and I said, well, I'd like to say reality as a meditator, like what's happening right now, but I suspect it might be memory. It's such an interesting question. What do you think, Martin? And he said, what was the question? <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. So, and reality is interesting, right? Because if you have Alzheimer's, the reality for someone living with Alzheimer's is not the reality for someone who doesn't, right? So if I have Alzheimer's, my access to the information that you understand in front of us might not be available to me, right? I might not know that this is called a microphone. I might not know how to use the keyboard. I might not understand what you're saying. Or I might be sharing a conversation with you about a memory I had from 30 years ago, and I'm thinking it's happening you know, yesterday or today. And so reality for me with Alzheimer's is going to be very different than you. And one of the key ways to stay emotionally connected to someone with Alzheimer's is to sort of be an improv actor. It's to use that first rule of improv acting is to say yes and to whatever reality the actor creates. And so that way you can build a relationship. And so it doesn't matter if it's nonsense. It's all about agreeing to what's said and going along with it. So for someone with Alzheimer's, the reality is, you know, if my grandmother says, oh, I'm waiting for my mother, she's going to be here any minute. It's not my job to reality orient her to what's, quote, real and say, well, you know, your mother died 30 years ago because now she's going to be reliving that as new information right now. Instead, I can agree to it. I can say, yes, and. I can say, sure, I'll wait for you while you wait for your, your mother. Can you tell me a bit about her? Or, oh, let's have a cup of tea while we wait. And then, you know, we go from there. Yeah, I, I volunteered in a hospice for several years. And one of the first lessons I learned was don't argue with somebody who has dementia or, or Alzheimer's. I remember sitting next to this guy who was very, very ill. And he asked me for 20 bucks to take a cab. And I learned not to try to talk him out of it or to redirect him to what's happening right now. I just kind of yeah, went along yeah. with it. It's um, improv. Absolutely. It's improv. Let me just go back to what we know about what it's like internally for people with Alzheimer's to the extent that we can know anything about it. Sorry, I'm going to tell a little bit of a personal story again, and I apologize to longtime listeners because this is a story I've told before, but it's relevant directly, I believe, which is that my first panic attack of my life, and I've had many, was when I was smoking weed outside of Newton South High School in uh, Newton, Massachusetts, uh, one town over from you, Lisa. And I then went into the gym to watch a basketball game. And the reality of my existence came down upon me like a uh, avalanche. And I realized that everything was that was happening was happening right now. Oh, no, no, no. Now it's now. Oh, no, now it's now. And I just kept waking up in the present moment in a way that was incredibly scary for me. And I wonder, is that what it's like? to have Alzheimer's or paradoxically, is it actually bliss? Because in meditative traditions, we're always talking about living in the now. 
Again, Dan, it depends. This is a neurodegenerative disease, which means that it's changing over time. So it's it's not just a flip of a switch and you have full-blown Alzheimer's and you've lost access to all of your memories and you are in this state of just accepting what's in front of you. And that's personal too, because again, like I said, you don't lose access to your emotions, right? And if anything, the disease doesn't just stay in the parts of your brain that are involved in memory. They also infiltrate, for example, your frontal cortex, your decision-making problem-solving area, and also the neurons that then inhibit your amygdala, your primitive emotion center. So a lot of people with Alzheimer's become disinhibited with respect to emotion. And some of that is lovely because you might be disinhibited with respect to joy, right? A lot of us aren't free to express our full-blown giddy joy because we've been socialized to be neat and tidy with our emotions. A lot of people with Alzheimer's are explosive with respect to anger. It can be lust. Any of those that we've been taught like not to express can get full-blown with Alzheimer's. But in the beginning, you know, so I think we're about the same age. I'm 52. And this is an age where neurotransmission slows down a little bit. Our processing speeds start to slow as we age. And I tell everybody, you know, it's sort of like your skin. It's an organ. You can wear a sunblock and stay out of the sun and do all the right things, eat healthy. Your 52-year-old skin is not going to look like your 22-year-old skin, no matter how good you take care of it. Well, same with the brain. There's tons we can do to take care of the health of our brain. We have a lot of agency there. But my 52-year-old brain is not going to be as fast as my 22-year-old brain, no matter what I do. So that's starting to happen. And we're like, oh, like mortality is sort of on our radar now. Like what's happening? Am I getting Alzheimer's? So if I were to start showing signs of actual Alzheimer's right now, it would be things like I drive to the mall and I park in the garage and I go to shop for an hour and I come back out and I can't remember where I parked. Now, the distinction here is if it's normal forgetting, it's probably because I didn't actually pay attention to where I parked, Dan. So it actually doesn't even involve my memory because the first necessary ingredient in creating a memory that lasts longer than this present moment is attention. Like Neurologically, if you don't give the thing your attention, you can't form a memory. So if I just zipped off and went into the mall and I was texting or I was thinking about something and I didn't pay attention to, oh, I parked in 4B, I never could make a memory of that. So I come out and I think I've forgotten it, but I actually never put that in my brain. If I have Alzheimer's, I come out, I could have paid all the attention to where I parked my car. I come out and I might have this thought, I don't remember how I got here. Or I might have this other thought, I'm actually standing in front of my car, but I don't recognize it as mine because I can't remember what kind of car I drive. And so those moments will happen in the beginning of Alzheimer's and it's very terrifying. It's jarring. It's you can't keep track of information you know you should keep track of. So it's this sense of, you know, am I going crazy? Can I be relied on? Can I trust myself? You identify as a smart person who's capable and you start to lose access to what you can normally rely on to function. So in the beginning stages, it's actually very scary. And it's incredibly helpful to know what's going on, to have other people to talk to about it, to not hide it. A lot of people feel they have to hide it. So the more open we can be and supportive and um, the safer and better equipped we are to deal with the changes that are going to occur with your memory, language, and cognition as this disease progresses. So are there medications or other forms of treatment that can be brought to bear to slow the progression of the disease and or make it all more bearable and livable? 
So historically, there have been no medications that alter the progression of this disease. There are a couple of medications that improve the quality of your life for a while. They help you with the activities of daily living for a little longer. They work on parts of the brain that aren't yet bombarded by Alzheimer's disease to help enhance your ability to function cognitively. So those are Aricept and Nemenda. And so they help for a little while, and then they don't, because again, the disease keeps marching on, and you lose all that neural substrate that those drugs are actually working on. There are a couple of new drugs that have been FDA-approved just within the last year that are disease-modifying. These are the first drugs that actually look like they might change the course of the disease and slow it down. Um, They are not home runs, which is okay. Um, I think a lot of people are upset and calling them controversial because they don't you know, do everything all at once. Like everybody just wants the magic pill, right? And we can talk about this too. Like everybody just give me the drug that's gonna reverse Alzheimer's or prevent it. And we're not there yet. The drugs that are available, slow cognitive decline in people who have mild cognitive impairment or early Alzheimer's by about 25 to 30%, which is exciting. It's significant. I'm genuinely encouraged and excited about this development. But it's an intravenous infusion, so it requires you to go to a medical facility to have the treatment. After Medicare pays for it, it's still, I think, like $26,000 a year, so it's not accessible for a lot of folks. It's not an over-the-counter pill yet. So we're not there for the majority of people. But these developments are what needs to happen for us to get to version 2.0 and 3.0. So that's encouraging for sure. But really what we want to do to prevent it and to slow it down and what we've actually shown is not the magic pill, Dan, it's lifestyle. And it's not particularly sexy, but the data is there and it works. And in fact, it's things like seven to nine hours of sleep a night. We know that that clears amyloid beta and reduces your risk of Alzheimer's by about a half if you can accomplish that. Exercise, so it's like 30 minutes a day, five days a week, aerobic exercise, walking like you're in a hurry, that's been shown to reduce your risk of Alzheimer's and dementia by a third to a half. And the Mediterranean and mind diet, folks who are on that, I know there's a new study out recently that that wasn't very encouraging, but there were big problems with it. The lion's share of all of that research is very compelling and again shows anywhere from like 40 to 60% reduction in risk of dementia by eating regularly the Mediterranean or mind diet. So if I told you a pill did that, everyone would take it. And it's also about folks understanding that they have an influence over their brain health and the health of their memory. I think everybody has gotten the memo about their heart health. So people know that, oh, if I walk 10,000 steps, if I eat right, if I exercise, I can keep my heart healthy. But the message hasn't really translated as much about brain health. And that's important that we start to understand like, oh, the things I'm doing are actually contributing to my ability to remember what happens today, tomorrow. So in the short term, we need to do these things. Um, And there's a biology to it. And there's a reason behind it. Happy to talk about any of those if you want. And it also can help future me from getting Alzheimer's. You know, I want to live a long life, but I want to match my brain span to my lifespan for sure. Coming up, Lisa Genova talks about the three things that happen in your brain while you sleep that are helpful for your memory and why brain games don't actually improve your memory. The 
weather is getting warmer. Time to ditch my jackets and sweaters for shorts and tees. I used to waste my money on clothing that would only last one season. That was until I found Quince. Now I've got high-quality pieces that never go out of style that I will be wearing year after year. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. I just made a big order at Quince.com. I got two pairs of sweatpants that I've just had for like a week, and I already love them. I'm wearing them all the time. Sweatpants are a huge deal to me uh, because I work from home and I want to look reasonably good, you know, in front of my wife and stuff, but uh, I want to be comfortable. And uh, the Quince sweatpants uh, do the trick. For me, the bottom line is uh, they've got good looking stuff at low prices. Not a bad recipe. You should go ahead and upgrade your wardrobe. Go to Quince.com slash happier for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash happier to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash happier. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash happier. Just go to Indeed.com slash happier right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash happier. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Mental Health Awareness Month, and while meditation is good for your mental health, it can also be challenging. But the 10% Happier app makes starting meditation easy. Download the app for free wherever you get your apps. Since you brought up all the things that we can do to improve our brain health, I think that's going to trigger a lot of interest among listeners. So let's stay with that for a second. Before we march through the list of things we can do, some of which you've already mentioned, Let me just ask a clarifying definitional question, which is, if I understand it correctly, there is dementia, which is cognitive decline writ large, and Alzheimer's is a kind of dementia. So dementia is the larger category. Am I right about that? Almost. And this, I get this. (laughs) I know it's okay. You know, Dan, I get this at every single talk I've ever done. So they tend to be used interchangeably. And I think The statistic that's out there is that, and the Alzheimer's Association did this study, 45% of people who have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's are not told so by their doctor for fear of upsetting them or stressing them out. And they're told instead they have dementia. Feels a little softer. So dementia is, you're right, it's this umbrella term. It's a symptom. So much like high blood pressure and high cholesterol is a symptom of heart disease, Dementia, which is an impairment in memory, 
language, or cognition that is out of proportion to your age and education level. So this symptom of dementia can be a symptom of a lot of different things. So it's the hallmark symptom of Alzheimer's, but it could also be a symptom of something else. It could be a symptom of a B12 deficiency which we can treat. It could be a a symptom of chronic sleep deprivation. It could be a symptom of lots of different sort of cousins of Alzheimer's, like Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia, frontotemporal lobe dementia. So if you are showing symptoms, impairment in memory, language, and cognition, your doctor's job is going to be to figure out what's causing that dementia. And Alzheimer's could be the cause. And it is the most common cause over the age of 70. Yeah, I appreciate that clarification. One more. As we go through these things we can do to improve our brain health, they will work on reducing the odds of dementia writ large as well as Alzheimer's or just Alzheimer's? It really depends. But certainly we know for Alzheimer's and vascular dementia, these things that we're going to talk about will reduce your odds of developing those. But if you know if your dementia is from alcoholism, that's separate. Dementia is a symptom of a lot of different things. Yes. I'm just thinking about my own familial and friend orbit. I've seen many kinds of dementia from Alzheimer's to alcohol-related, forgetting to Lewy body. It's an unpleasant horn of plenty. All right. So let's pick up on all those fascinating things you said about what we can and cannot do about this. But one of the things you say is that brain games don't help I know people don't love hearing that one. I know there are companies out there trying to make money off of people's fears. And by the way, if anybody's offering anyone a supplement that says, oh, this will improve your memory or this will prevent Alzheimer's, they are snake oil salesmen and they're probably being sued because that has not been shown. The clinical trials have not borne that out. If there's something available that actually improves your memory and cognition and prevents Alzheimer's, you're going to hear about it from Maria Shriver. You're going to hear about it from Rudy Tanzi. You're going to hear about it from respected news journalists. You're not going to see somebody on YouTube. So the brain games, the crossword puzzles, the Sudoku, you're going to get really good at doing those games. But it doesn't cross-train or cross-translate to being good at remembering what happened last month or remembering where you put your phone or remembering that you need to buy milk at the grocery store. You're going to get very good at doing those things. And it actually doesn't lead to what we call a cognitive reserve. So in order to build an Alzheimer's-resistant brain through doing things, you really want to learn new things and you want to learn complex things. So crossword puzzles are mostly retrieving information you already know. You're not actually building new neural pathways. So Dan, every time you learn something new, and so all of your listeners are actually building bigger brains every time they listen to your podcast, because every time we learn something new, we're building new neural connections. So if you think about it, that information didn't exist in your brain before you learned it. If it lives in your brain now, if it's information you can access and use, that means your brain had to change. And so if you build more neural connections, think of them as like neural roads or branches of a tree, if you're building more of those branches and you end up developing some Alzheimer's pathology that's blocking some connections in your brain, so you have some roadblocks, you might not even notice it's there because you have a lot of excess roads. You have an abundance and a redundancy in neural connections, so you can detour any of those roadblocks. So we talk about 
neuroplasticity and building a cognitive reserve as a way to prevent you from being diagnosed with Alzheimer's, even if you've got some in there. So learning new things, it's not crosswords. It's you know, reading a book, listening to a podcast, it's learning a new instrument, it's learning a new sport. A lot of people took up pickleball in the past year or so. It's going to a new city, going on vacation. Anytime you can really wake up your brain, your senses to experiencing something new that you didn't understand or know before, that is going to build new neural connections in a way that is preventative for Alzheimer's. So you're saying that the health of my listeners depends on them continuing to listen to the show. (laughs) Absolutely, yes. (laughs) This is the best advertisement I've ever had. Um, Okay, so that all makes sense. And actually what I hear from that is have a great life. You know, an interesting life consists of travel, reading, listening to great podcasts, uh, learning a sport, learning how to play an instrument. So if you do life well, actually, it's going to contribute to a reduction in the possibility of of Alzheimer's. That's incredibly reassuring. It does put me in mind, though, of meditation, because meditation does, in my experience, open up the senses. You know, you are deliberately trying to go south of your intracranial noise and into the data of your senses. Is there any evidence to suggest that this practice might help with brain health? Absolutely. I mean, the biggest way that we've seen that meditation helps brain health is reducing your reactivity to chronic stress. So we know that chronic stress is really bad for your memory today. So it's bad for your ability to make new memories today. It's bad for your ability to retrieve memories that you've already made. And it puts your brain at risk for developing Alzheimer's in the future. So something is stressful, something is dangerous, or it's critical, it's urgent. So my brain then sends signals to my pituitary, which sends hormone to my adrenal glands, which releases stress hormone. And then I can show up to the event. So you're releasing adrenaline and cortisol when you wake up in the morning. I got to face the day. When the car in front of me stops short and I have to hit the brakes. If something really dangerous is happening, like a, a lion is chasing me. Like, so those are the, like, ah, I'm running for my life kind of thing. Modern day, a lot of it is, you know, it's not a predator. Your predator is the thoughts in your head that are constantly running. So if it's what we call an acute stressor, it happens and then it's gone, well, that's actually not so bad. Like we need that stress response to function, to like show up for a presentation, to get out of bed, like I said. But if the stress doesn't go away, and this is where the, as you mentioned, like the chatter in your head comes in, you know, we're not constantly being chased by a lion, but the thoughts in our heads can be chronic. So it's, you know, the top three psychological stressors are social isolation, perceived lack of control, and uncertainty. You know, since the pandemic, we tend to tick all of those boxes. So what happens in chronic stress is cortisol and adrenaline get released by the adrenals, your heart rate goes, your breathing is accelerated, your muscles are ready for action, but then cortisol comes on board, it acts on receptors back in the brain, and it shuts the whole thing off, and then you calm down. But in chronic stress, the receptors become desensitized. They either down-regulate or they don't react anymore to cortisol. Now I'm just in a chronic state of dumping adrenaline cortisol. And when you do that, you actually shrink the size of your hippocampus. Now the hippocampus is a part of your brain that is essential for the formation of new consciously held memories. So if I don't have a hippocampus, I can't remember any new information or anything that happened. 
The hippocampus is also the place that's under attack first by Alzheimer's. So this is why people who have Alzheimer's can't remember what they said a minute ago. They can't remember if they already ate lunch. They repeat themselves. They can't find words. So if you meditate, even in the face of all of that same amount of stress, you'll restore cortisol levels and you'll restore the size of your hippocampus. In fact, if we compare studies that have been done, people who meditate for 30 minutes a day, I think it was for eight weeks, versus age-matched controls who did not meditate, the meditators, their hippocampus were bigger than the people who did not. And so we do know that meditation is fantastic for your memory today and and reducing the cortisol levels that can be detrimental to your memory and, and risk of Alzheimer's. Brian, the engineer who's producing this episode here in the studio with me, was telling me before we started rolling that he dropped off the meditation train. So I think you've scared the shit out of him and he's going to uh, get back in the game. I, I hope that this like I love this kind of information because it doesn't so much as scare me as like, oh, there's actually yeah. a biology to this. Like that's so helpful to me. And I think a lot of people in understanding that there is a physiological effect of something like meditation and to understand why the thoughts that are running around in the background are stressful. Like they're really modern day predators. You're being chased and attacked all day. um, And so you need some kind of defense against that or it's going to cause physiological damage. Sometimes people talk about the fact that we develop these physiological mechanisms to run away from a tiger. But now we're both the person running away from the tiger and the tiger. We're doing it to ourselves. Right. It's all inside ourselves. Yeah. There are other ways to reduce stress. From what I can tell, the most powerful mechanism is having good relationships in your life. Robert Waldinger, also a Boston guy, has been running this. I guess he's the most recent guy to run this multi-generational study that's looked at people in the Boston area and figured out like what contributes to longevity and what comes screaming out of the data to the extent that I understand it is that people who live the longest are the people who have the best relationships. And the mechanism is that good relationships help you handle the natural ups and downs of life. As Robert says, never worry alone. I think that's a brilliant expression. And so I throw that to you to see what you think about this. I love that. Although my dad would say, don't worry, because it doesn't do any good. But Fair enough. I love that. And that jibes with a lot of other data with blue zones and multi-generational community and a sense of relational. We know that social isolation is a risk factor for Alzheimer's and memory loss. And I also think that if you have community, if you're in relationship, then you also have opportunities for collaborative play. So exercise, right? Or going for a walk with someone. I always tell people, your 30-minute walk is great, but can we make a bigger bang for that buck? Can you go for a walk with someone? Then you're in conversation. That conversation's never happened before. So you're waking your brain up. If you're really listening, then you're building new neural connections because you're talking about something that hasn't happened before. You're not isolated anymore, so you're in relation and you're you're connected to someone you care about. And then I also add another, a third layer on that. Walk somewhere you haven't been before or get out of your routine. So if you always walk in the neighborhood, go downtown. Or if you always walk on the beach, go you know into the mountains or try a new neighborhood and, and look at the houses in a different scenery. So our brains have evolved to remember what's meaningful, emotional, surprising, or new or what we repeat in practice. And they forget what isn't. Our brains forget what is routine, predictable, inconsequential, 
same old, same old. And so whenever you can do something with someone that's not same old, same old, you're really giving your brain some good stuff. This is awesome. Let's talk about sleep. I, as somebody who has struggled with insomnia, hear seven to nine hours a night of sleep. And just to say to the listeners, especially if you're new, we've done a lot of episodes on sleep and I'll put some links in the show notes because I've voiced this concern before. But people who are sleep evangelists will say, I can do all this good stuff for you. Most notably, it can help you reduce the odds of dementia and Alzheimer's. And I hear that as kind of terrifying because there are not a few nights where I can't sleep. And if I recall that information, it makes me even more fucked. So yeah. what, what advice do you have? I'm so glad you're bringing this up because, you know, I talk about this a lot all over the world and sleep is the thing that people are scared of the most because a lot of people struggle with this. And to your point, Dan, I mean, I think throughout life, if we just look at women, if you've had children, you know, there's the pregnancy where you probably didn't sleep well. And then there's the newborn phase where you probably didn't sleep well. And then there's perimenopause and menopause. And then the men, there's like all of the reasons that you have with the stress and anxieties of your lives. And then there's enlarged prostate and you're up all night going to the bathroom to pee. So there's all these reasons why we humans at different phases of life have disrupted sleep. The good news I want to lead off with is we're very resilient. So we don't get Alzheimer's overnight if we had a bad night's sleep last night. The way I like to look at it is every night that I can give myself seven to nine hours of sleep, I'm doing something really good for my brain that's helpful. And so let me like just explain three things that are happening in your brain while you sleep that are helpful for memory and preventing your risk of Alzheimer's. And again, you have to remember that, you know, you're not going to wake up tomorrow with amnesia if you don't get a good night's sleep tonight. So we just want to do the best we can. Dan, I think it's still a worthy goal. And I understand that it's tough for a lot of us. And in different phases of life, it will be harder than others. But I, I still want folks to not be demoralized here. Because here's the deal. Like, sleep is not an unconscious state of doing nothing. We're so biologically busy while we sleep, right? Why would we spend a third of our lives unconscious, being vulnerable to attack, right? And predators. It's because so many important things are happening. And so with respect to memory, it's three things. The first is all of the information that you perceived and paid attention to, that you cared about today, things that you know were meaningful, emotional, surprising, new, or whatever you practiced today, become consolidated into memory. What does that mean? It means it becomes linked together into a stable neural network while you sleep, okay? So if you don't get a full night's sleep and it's both quality and quantity, there are certain stages of sleep that happen through the night that knit that information together into a memory, then tomorrow when I wake up, that memory might not be fully formed or it might not be formed at all. It might be something that I end up forgetting. So that's one thing. The other is it has to do with attention. So I already told you that the first necessary ingredient in creating a memory that's going to last longer than right now is my attention. If I got a crappy night's sleep last night, my frontal lobe is going to have a hard time coming to its day job today. I'm going to be really groggy and like, oh, I can't. I got to have a hard time paying attention to what you're saying to me because I'm tired. And so if I can't pay attention to what's happening today because I'm tired, I can't make new memories today. Um, and the third thing has to do with Alzheimer's. So while we sleep, the sewage and sanitation department of your brain, these are your glial cells, they go to work. So all the janitors go to their jobs and they start clearing away all the metabolic debris that accumulated in your brain while you were in the business of being awake. 
And one of the critical things that clears away is a protein called amyloid beta. Now, if amyloid beta is not cleared away, it's a sticky protein, and it'll bind to itself and form plaques. And so if you do this over and over again, if you don't clear away your amyloid beta and it's allowed to accumulate, again, not overnight, we think it takes 10 to 20 years of accumulation, it will then reach a tipping point that triggers a molecular cascade that causes what we experience as dementia and Alzheimer's. So the good news here is that we have a lot of room with that amyloid plaque accumulation. Sleep can help clear the amyloid away, and so does exercise and meditation and eating a Mediterranean diet. So there's lots of ways we can clear it away. Sleep is just one of the tools in your tool belt for clearing amyloid away so that you don't reach that tipping point and you might never get Alzheimer's. I was reflecting while listening to you on the irony of the fact that one of the most uh, pleasant and engaging guests we've had on the show in a long time is the Alzheimer's lady. So kudos to you for making all of this fun to talk about. But just to pick up on what you're actually saying there, what I hear is, yes, sleep is really important, not only for long-term brain health as it relates to Alzheimer's, but also for your day-to-day function. And you want to just do your best without freaking out about it. And there are many other levers we can pull from exercise to meditation that will have similar benefits. So do your best, but don't freak out. Absolutely. Yeah, because freaking out is going to then lead to a problem, right? So as I tell people like, oh, if, if every time you forget something, you freak out and become stressed out and anxious and embarrassed and upset and judgmental and all that in your head, oh, I'm, I have a horrible memory. I'm probably going to get Alzheimer's and you're worried well, all of that stress, if it's chronic, is going to lead to actual memory problems. So yes, just like you said, we need to give ourselves a break. So have the best of intentions and, and we want to make this a priority and it's not going to go perfectly. That's okay. We've got room. To put a fine point on it and take us back into a little bit of a darker territory here, and I say this hopefully in the spirit of a PSA, I have two very close relatives, both male, both with severe dementia right now, both of whom had decades-long untreated sleep apnea. And I'm not a doctor, although I'm married to one, and I have a pretty strong suspicion that that untreated sleep apnea was the very least a contributor to their current conditions. Yeah, I'd agree. It contributed. Yeah. And it's not, unless you have familial early onset Alzheimer's, like the kind I gave to Alice and still Alice, where a single genetic mutation is going to cause this disease no matter what you do, And that's a very small percent. It's like 2% of Alzheimer's is that. For the rest of us, for 98% of folks, you have a lot of agency over getting this disease. And so there's a, you know, sleep apnea. If you think of it like a seesaw scale and you're piling things on it, when that hits the floor, you're going to get Alzheimer's. Well, sleep apnea was on that side of the scale that tipped it a bit. But that alone wasn't the reason. There's likely more things that contributed to the development of that. Coming up, Lisa talks about the foods that are the best fuel for your brain and the best exercises for reducing the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's. I love cats. I make no secret of that. We've got four cats. But here's the thing about felines. They poop a lot. You need kitty litter and you need that kitty litter to do the job which is why I'm proud to recommend Tidy Care Alert, which has long-lasting ammonia control so your house or your apartment or your yurt or wherever you live does not smell like you have four cats or however many cats you happen to have. No judgment here. 
It's low dust and lightweight, which means no lugging heavy bags of cat litter up the stairs. And it's from the brand most often recommended and personally used by veterinarians. Tidy Care Alert uses color-changing crystals to detect potential concerns and help put your mind at ease. Let Tidy Care Alert help keep an eye on your cat's health. It's spring, and that means it's graduation season, and I've got an idea for an incredibly fun graduation gift or party favor. Did you know that you can get personalized M&Ms? You can choose from over 20 colors and add your graduate's name, graduation-themed graphics, or photos, which are printed directly on the candy. I recently got a sample of some of these personalized M&Ms. Uh, they showed up in my mailbox. They got my face on them, which makes it a little bit awkward for me to eat them personally. I'm doing it anyway. The M&Ms I got also include the words 10% happier, to which I have a deep attachment. I was kind of thrilled uh, when I saw them. I was wondering if they were a gift from somebody on the uh, 10th anniversary of the 10% Happier book. Turns out they weren't. They were a gift from uh, M&Ms, who are now a sponsor of this show. So thank you, M&Ms. Uh, for sponsoring this show and for the delicious treat. You can visit MMS.com to create your own unique custom gifts and memorable party favors for graduations, weddings, birthdays, and more. That's MMS.com. Use code HAPPIER to receive 15% off your next order. You have referenced this already, but I, I suspect there's more to say about both diet and vitamins? Mostly, if you're actually eating the right diet, you're getting all of the vitamins and the micronutrients that you need. That said, we know you need B12. We know you need vitamin D for good cognition and memory. So if, if, as long as your vitamin D levels aren't low and your B12 isn't low, there aren't any recommended vitamins that enhance memory that have been shown in any clinical study. Okay, so what do you need to eat? Well, can I stop you on the vitamins for a second? Yeah. So I don't know why or how I got into this habit, but I take vitamin B12 and vitamin D every morning. I guess the D is because I had a benign tumor on my face, and so I wear a lot of sunscreen. And so I try to get outside a lot, but I'm also very careful about not getting direct sunlight. So I do that. And then the B12, I think I started taking when I was a vegan and then a vegetarian. So should I stop doing that, keep doing it? I mean, you're not a physician, but generally speaking, are these good things to investigate? Again, if you go to your annual physical and you're, you can ask your, your doctor if you need to continue or not, they're not going to hurt you. You're not going to use more of it. It's like, well, if I have more B12, then I'll remember more. It's like, no, you're just going to pee it out. So you just have expensive pee if you don't need it. Um, yeah. So omega-3 fatty acids are another supplement. Folks can take that. It is actually very good for your brain, but you can get that in diet. Again, I think that getting these vitamins in a diet that are surrounded by fiber and other micronutrients we might not have even figured out yet, it's always the way to go because we've evolved our brains, our bodies, like it's all evolved to use what is in nature. So if you can eat the Mediterranean in mind diet, basically this is a, a way of eating that focuses on sort of like sleep. Again, folks, you're not going to be perfect at this. This isn't like, oh, I'm not going to try it because I can't give up donuts and bacon. It's like, no, you're going to eat 
you know, I'm going to eat a cannoli when I'm, when I'm in the north end of Boston. Like, it's okay to enjoy these things that aren't on the diet. It's not perfect. But whenever you can, when can you incorporate these things into your day-to-day lives? So it's green leafy vegetables, it's brightly colored fruits and vegetables, it's the berries, it's nuts and beans, it's olive oil, it's fatty fish like salmon. Those are the foods that are going to really be the high octane fuel for your brain, both today and preventing Alzheimer's in the future. The studies have been shown. They're really good. We know this. This is the science evidence-based knowledge that we have. So not the supplements you're seeing on YouTube. It's this. Whole foods, folks, get in the habit of buying vegetables and fruits and beans and nuts and figuring out ways to toss those in your salad or your tomato sauce or, or get some good recipes on Instagram. It's delicious. It's a great way to live. Feels good. Yes, and have a donut once in a while. Oh, of course. It's not about perfection. It's about... Can you give your brain something that's really great for it today? One of the meals today. Can you throw some blueberries on your breakfast? Can you eat a handful of berries instead of a handful of potato chips? Can you swap something out? Just to be mindful of it. Again, getting to like meditation and mindfulness and how this can translate to everything we do. Are you mindful of what you're putting in your body or is it just a habit? Is it just a mindless, oh, I'm hungry. I'm going to go grab a bag of tortilla chips. It's like, if you can be mindful about, well, what do I want to feed my brain today? What do I want to feed my body today? You can make different choices. And finally, let's talk about exercise. Not everybody is able-bodied, so if you can't go running, I would imagine walking is a good replacement. If you're in a wheelchair, it's about doing some trips in your wheelchair, up and down the block or whatever. But all of this counts, or is there some form of exercise that's better than another? The data show that aerobic exercise and leg weight-bearing exercise has been shown to reduce the risk of dementia and Alzheimer's significantly. So you're right. You don't have to go for a run. The data shows that it's a brisk walk. And that means like walk like you're in a hurry. Walk like you're trying to catch a flight. Um, It's not a stroll um, at the very least. Or if you're able-bodied enough Can you involve physical activity that involves play? Because then you're using your brain in a more complicated way. So like I take a dance class three days a week. I play pickleball, play tennis. A lot of people pick up golf when they're older. Are there activities that you can do? Can you go swimming? So anything that feels a little more maybe playful might be a fun way to incorporate exercise that actually is a way to stick with it too. Because also if it's social, It's helping tick that box again too, relational, right? If we feel like we're part of a community, if we're in a relationship, and if you're using your brain, like I go to dance class and I see people there who I love, and I'm using my brain to try and figure out that choreography. And when we learn a new dance, it's cognitively exhausting in in a really wonderful way. And that's this great aerobic workout. So I'm always looking for ways to get a bigger bang for the buck. As you walk us through this incredibly helpful list of things we can do to improve our brain health, I keep thinking, and this may be just incredibly obvious, but I I keep thinking that there's a social, cultural, political piece to this because there are many people who 
don't have access to healthy food, who don't have access to things that might reduce stress like a meditation app or a therapist, whose lives are just inherently more stressful because they're surrounded by violence or they're being abused. And I don't know if there's a question here, but just to acknowledge that there's some structural unfairness. For sure. I think, you know, as much as possible, it's helpful to share information that doesn't require signing up for a class, that doesn't require anything expensive. So, yeah, I mean, the, the food piece, it can be expensive. If you buy seasonally, it's not. I mean, if you buy corn when it's in season or tomatoes when they're in season, they're local produce. It tends to be cheap. If you have a yard, can you start a garden? Again, it's about prioritizing. And I I get that in the moment, fast food might seem like, okay, it's the cheapest, easiest thing. I got to feed me and my family. If there's a way to do it economically now, you might be saving yourself some medical bills in the future. But yeah, that's a tough one, Dan. I mean, I need to burn the whole system down and start over for all the reasons. Yeah, I appreciate that acknowledgement. We're not trying to fix it necessarily, but just pointing it out, I think is helpful. Let me just go back to some questions I probably should have asked at the top of the interview, but I was just going with your flow and you said so many interesting things. In the book, you talk about how we remember and you have a whole section called Making Memories 101. Can you give us the TLDR quick summary on that? Okay, so memory creation takes place in four basic steps. The first is your brain takes in all the sights, the sounds, the smells, the tastes, the emotion, the language of whatever you perceived and paid attention to, and it translates all of that into neurological language. So basically, the information from out there goes into your brain. The second step is your brain takes all of the disparate Neural activity, all of those different sights and sounds are neural activity in different parts of your brain. Your brain is taking all of that neural activity and weaving it into a single pattern of associated connections. So your brain's weaving all that information together. The third step is through changes in neural chemistry and neural architecture, that woven circuit actually becomes stable over time. So it becomes a stable connected unit. And then the fourth is either tomorrow or next week or 30 years from now, when any part of that neural circuit, that woven neural circuit is activated, it has the potential to activate the whole circuit and you can retrieve that woven information. And that's remembering. And as you said before, a necessary precondition, if you're going to remember anything, is to pay attention. So if you're walking through your life as I often do, looking at your phone, thinking about something else, planning a homicide, whatever it is, you're going to be less likely to remember the shit that's actually happening to you. Yes, and this plagues us every day. And I think that there's this misconception out there that memory is supposed to be perfect and we're supposed to remember everything. And this is why people freak out when they can't find their glasses or their phone or you're driving in your car, Dan, and all of a sudden you realize like you don't remember the last 20 minutes of the trip. You're like, oh my God, what just happened? Like I've been in my car, have I been unconscious? These are moments where it's actually all about attention. And this is why, again, like things like meditation can help you get really good at paying attention. 
You don't remember where you put your glasses and your keys and your phone because you weren't paying attention to where you put them. It has nothing to do with forgetting because you never made the memory in the first place. Driving. If you're driving a familiar stretch of road, the example I use in the book is I regularly cross the Sagamore Bridge on my way from Boston to Cape Cod. This is a huge bridge. It's four lanes. It's like you cannot miss this structure. And I will be 10 minutes past the bridge and suddenly have the freaked out moment where I think, wait, where am I? Did I already go over the bridge? Like what where, What happened? And so what did happen here? So my eyes were open. The visual information of the bridge went into my brain. It went into the occipital cortex in the back. That's where you see. You don't see in your eyes. You see in your brain. So the bridge went into my brain and I didn't forget how to drive. You know, I didn't crash the car. I made it safely over the bridge. So that was online. My, my memory for how to drive was fine. It's not like I'm asking my brain to remember something that happened 30 years ago. This happened 10 minutes ago. I have no recollection of it. It's because I wasn't paying attention, because I've gone over that bridge so many times. So it wasn't meaningful, emotional, surprising, or new to me, right? And because I was probably lost in thought or I was listening to an audiobook, the experience of going over it goes out of my brain and it's gone within seconds. It's not woven into a memory. But just to pick up on something, you said this at the beginning of the interview, but I failed to put a pin in it then, but I'm going to do it now. There is such a thing as normal forgetting, and we don't need to worry too much about it and think that if we're forgetting some stuff, we are on the fast track to right. Alzheimer's. Right. So yeah, again, people think our brains are supposed to be able to remember everything, and, and our human brains were not designed to remember people's names to do something later, or to catalog everything we encounter. I mean, those are really just the factory settings. And so to expect more of it is not reasonable. And so it's helpful to know what's happening and why our brains aren't good at remembering names and why it's not going to remember to pick up the five things you need at the grocery store later unless you make a list or have some kind of memory device to remember them. You should write down everything you need to do later. Like you should have checklists, to-do lists, you should outsource. It's called your prospective memory. It's terrible. It is not reliable in any human being, no matter how good your brain is, no matter how smart you are. This is why surgeons now use checklists and pilots use checklists. So they remember to lower the wheels of the plane before landing. Like if they use checklists for such important things, we should probably use them too. Like forgetting someone's name, people freak out about this one all the time. Like, oh my God, there must be something wrong with my memory or maybe I'm getting Alzheimer's because you know, I can't remember the name of the, the Netflix show my friend recommended this morning and I'm trying to watch it tonight and I don't know what it was and I can't remember this guy's name. Like, he just introduced himself to me and I'm in conversation with him 30 seconds later and I can't remember what he told me. But our brains aren't designed to remember names. So proper nouns. So cities, book titles, movie titles, names. Think of them as living in neurological cul-de-sacs. These words are super hard to reach. There's ultimately only one road that leads to that address. Unlike common nouns, which you can think of living on Main Street, and there's lots of neural connections, lots of roads that lead to them. So we can give ourselves a break. It's normal for us to have that tip of the tongue, like, oh, what's his name? I can't get to it. And then, by the way, folks, totally okay to Google it. I think that, Dan, like people our age and older, we think we've got to muscle through. And like, if I look this up, I'm going to make my memory worse. I'm going to weaken my brain if I look it up. And it's cheating. It's not. Your brain isn't doing anything useful when it can't get to that word in the cul-de-sac. It's actually probably on a related word. 
So, right, it's usually like the same first letter or something similar in sound or meaning, but it's not. So like the example I used is I was trying to come up with the name of a famous surfer. And I, and I said, is it Lance? Like, no, it's not Lance. But that sent my brain to Lance Armstrong. So now I'm like in the neighborhood of my brain where there's like Tour de France and Sheryl Crow and, and, and that. And it's not that. So if I stay trying to find it, I'm just in the wrong neighborhood. I'm not doing anything useful. And this is why once you stop trying to find the name that you can't come up with, like you're in the car or you're in the shower later and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God, it's Laird Hamilton. That's because by calling off the hunt, I can stop putting energy in the wrong neural neighborhood and I can give the correct set of neurons a chance to get activated. Or I can just look it up, which is what young people do because they've had their smartphones forever. So yeah, you can Google what you can't remember. In the closing section of your book, you talk about the memory paradox. What is that? So the memory paradox is this idea, we touched on it a little before, where you know, memory is this incredibly important, essential thing that we use all day long, every day. It's very much essential to the business of being human. And yet it's also a bit of a dunce, right? Because you don't remember most of your own life, Dan, because most of our lives are spent doing routine, predictable things, right? We get up, we get dressed, coffee, three meals, we do the business of what we do every day, it's similar. So unless something meaningful happens, like I will remember this, this is not my usual day-to-day, but we don't remember most of our own lives. So like memory is amazing, but it's also kind of dumb. So my take home is like, maybe we can take it seriously, but hold it lightly. Like maybe we can, you know, if we recognize that memory is awesome and limitless, by the way, at any age, I can learn a new language, play guitar. I can learn all the words to the latest Taylor Swift song, like at any age, right? I'm also going to forget things like, you know, where I put my phone and I can't remember my fourth grade teacher and I forgot to pick up the dry cleaning and it's going to do the, you know, oh, who played, uh, who who was in the the movie with so-and-so? Like it's going to do those things. So if we recognize, well, it's awesome, I should take care of it, right? So I will do things like regularly exercise, try to get a good night's sleep, try to eat foods on the Mediterranean diet, stay socially connected and and reduce my reactivity to chronic stress, make those priorities. So I think we can be more relaxed and forgiving of ourselves when we have these moments of forgetting that are normal and recognizing that they are normal gives us a chance to sort of exhale and be less stressed about forgetting, which is lovely because if we stress about forgetting, it will happen more often. I love that. Take it seriously. Hold it lightly. One last little question here. Uh, Brian, the aforementioned engineer on this episode, he pointed out something that I knew, but I had to be a little cute, forgotten to ask about, which is that, and I've seen this, Alzheimer's patients, often people who aren't responsive too much, they will often respond to music. Why is that? Such a great question. And it's so true. And it's really magical when you see it happen. So again, remember I told you that memory is a circuit. It's a woven circuit and it's sights and sounds and emotion and language. It's all of those nodules, all of those elements woven together. And activation of any one of those nodules can serve to activate the rest of the circuit. So they weren't playing the latest Taylor Swift song to this person with Alzheimer's. My bet is that they were playing a song from back when this person was in their 20s, maybe, right? So your your most 
recent memories and personal history go first. So what you said two minutes ago is shaved away. What happened yesterday might get shaved away. What happened last year is harder for me or might be no longer accessible. But 30 years ago might be totally fine. So if I can play a song from that part of their lives, not only do I remember the song, but I might remember those other nodules that that song's attached to, right? So if you are driving in your car and a song comes on the radio you haven't heard since you were a teenager, you still know all the lyrics to this song you haven't practiced in 30, 40 years. And like, oh, now I remember the guy I was seeing. I was living in Bethesda and blah, 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 blah. Like it's, all those memories come back. We remember the lyrics to these songs because the radios overplay them. So you had a lot of practice. We remember what we repeat in practice. And there might be an emotional element, right? We remember what's meaningful, emotional, surprising, new, and what we repeat in practice. So for the person with Alzheimer's, songs from the past can unlock the joy of that song for that person and any memories related to that song. Because I think we can all understand that experience of like, oh, that's the song that I used to love and I used to go for runs to or I used to dance to or I used to hear on the radio when I was driving when I was at this point in my life. So that's how that works. You've been such a pleasure to talk to, which is, again, so counterintuitive given the subject matter. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to cover that I didn't give you a chance to? No, I think we did great. Thanks, Dan. Uh, you did great. Can you just please shamelessly plug Remember and any other books or any other resources at all that you want us to know about? So yeah, my most recent book is Remember What We're Talking About Now, and I'm back to writing fiction. I just finished a novel about a young woman with bipolar disorder that will be out late next year. And we might push it a little because I don't want it to come out in the middle of the election, which we might all be very distracted by. But yeah, I'm very excited to use story as a vehicle for empathy and conversation about mental illness and bipolar in particular. That's next up for me. But people can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and my website's lisagenova.com. Thank you so much, Lisa. Great job with this. Really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Dan. My pleasure. I'm a huge fan. I love what you do. <laughs> I love that you're devoting your time and energy and heart to something so helpful. Like you've helped me. So thank you. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks again to Lisa Genova. Ran into her actually uh, a few weeks after we recorded this interview and she was just as awesome in person as she is on Zoom. Thank you to you for listening. I could not and would not do any of this without you, so I'm genuinely grateful. And most of all, I want to thank everybody who works so hard on this show. 10% Happier is produced by Gabrielle Zuckerman, Justine Davey, Lauren Smith, and Tara Anderson. DJ Kashmir is our senior producer. Marissa Schneiderman is our senior editor. And Kimmy Regler is our executive producer. Scoring and mixing by Peter Bonaventure of Ultraviolet Audio and Nick Thorburn of the band Islands wrote our theme. We'll see you all on Wednesday for some Dharma with Lama Rod Owens. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. 
Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense thing you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.